It is good to have Joel back, isn't it? I'll tell you what, it's, uh, he's involved in some amazing things and some amazing places, and uh, it's just remarkable that we have the joy and privilege of having our brother back with us again, so good to have you back, brother. Before we get started this morning, I want to tell you about a few changes that we're anticipating. First of all, we've done some specialized training with our ushers. Now, you know that our offering is about a three to four minute segment, just like we just had here a minute ago in our Sunday service. However, that may change with some of the things that our ushers have learned in their usher training. For example, there's this new phrase that the ushers may once in a while be saying to you as they pass the bags. They may be saying, must I remind you that God is watching? Then there's this. We got this from Tithe Thugs Incorporated. They're a ministry consultant firm for churches that are experiencing issues with their members who are deemed to not be giving their potential. And their motto is, give now or give now. (laughs) Now, unfortunately, this new training that we've had for the ushers has led to some bad habits that we're going to have to address, unfortunately. I've heard, for example, that Al Baker has the last two weeks been betting on his side of the aisle to win the largest offering. (laughs) Just a few more giving-related cartoons for good measure this morning. Here's one that says, Pastor Ron decided to quit beating around the bush. And the pastor is saying, your tithe is crucial to my retirement plans. (laughs) Then we see this guy handing an usher something, and what he says is, I have a Groupon. Or buy 5% tithe and get 5% free. We're not handing those out today. And finally, there's this lady meeting with a pastor, and she says, I'd really like to join the church, pastor, but this tithe thingy is a little bit steep. Do you have a junior membership program? I hope that not too many of us here are on the junior membership program. I needed to start this morning with a little bit of humor, not only to make sure you're awake. Everybody awake? And paying attention, everybody paying attention? Good, good. But also because I have to tell you, this is a difficult message to preach. As I've thought about this really over the course of the last several weeks, I've resisted preaching this sermon. It's not a fun sermon to bring. I'd rather bring an inspiring message. I'd rather talk about things that I feel I know better. But it's the kind of thing that probably makes many of us uncomfortable. It's the kind of thing that honestly... It makes me uncomfortable, too. It makes me uncomfortable partially because it's personally convicting. Whenever you study what the Bible has to say about money and giving and possessions, it's always personally convicting. But it also makes me uncomfortable because it could seem self-serving. After all, your giving helps to pay my salary, among other things, here at the church. So I don't want to be selfish. I don't want to be seen as selfish in preaching a message like I'm bringing today. Also... The other thing that makes it difficult to preach a message like this is that we've all seen the great abuses in how churches and ministries raise money. I've personally attended services where I felt manipulated. I've attended services where I felt the appeal was very unbiblical and very inappropriate, not to mention way too long. We really resist that kind of manipulation here at TCF. We resist that kind of false doctrine here at TCF. We want our giving to be truly God-directed and inspired by God and not emotionally manipulative in any way. 
we want your giving to be a grateful response to all that God has done for us in Christ. But that desire to not be self-serving and manipulative is a perfect example of how sometimes when you seek to correct something, the pendulum can swing a little bit too far. And that's what's happened, I believe. In the righteous desire that we have to avoid these kinds of things that I mentioned, we've also inevitably avoided one of the most significant themes in the Word of God. I don't think that's good for us spiritually. And today, I'm not only going to begin to fix that, but I'm going to pledge to you that I'm no longer going to avoid the discomfort of bringing a message like this, what you're going to hear today. One of TCF's first elders, Chuck Farah, often spoke of teaching or preaching the whole counsel of God. In avoiding talking about giving and money, we could rightly be charged with not preaching the whole counsel of God. There are vital pastoral reasons we should preach and teach more often on what many have called stewardship. It's interesting, as I began to research this message, I, one of the first things I did is I saw when I looked, when is the last time I preached anything on this? And I have to say it was nine years ago was the last time I preached on this theme. I want to recall for you this morning some of the things that I've learned in my 34 years here at TCF. We used to hear messages like this a little more often. We've never hear, heard them like every other week kind of thing, but we used to hear them a little more often. And in my 34 years, I remember messages on giving by both Chuck Farah and Bill Sanders and other TCF elders with some major themes related to giving. And the first is this. This is the major theme related to giving. It all belongs to God. It all belongs to God. This is a consistent theme that we see in the Word of God. Everything we have belongs to God. God owns it all. Here's just a sample of verses that attest to this truth. Deuteronomy 10:14 says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Leviticus 25:23, The land is mine and you are but aliens and my tenants. Job 41:11, Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Psalm 24, 1 and 2, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12, For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. And, and the verse that is on your bulletin cover this morning, Haggai 2.8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. You're sensing a theme here? You're sensing an idea here? It all belongs to God. You can search the scriptures and you will search in vain for a single verse that says anything at all about God surrendering his ownership of anything to us. Understanding this is the foundation of any truly biblical understanding of money and possessions and giving. But you might think, well, I, I have a house, or I have an apartment, or I have a car, or I have clothing. I own stuff. But the truth is, in a biblical understanding of ownership, you don't own anything. 
you are only allowed, by God's grace, to use what already belongs to him. What he has in his love for you provided for your use. But you don't own it. You are in the understanding of an old-fashioned word. You are a steward. We are all steward of the good things that God gives us. We don't hear this word steward or stewardship much anymore. And often when we do hear that word in church settings, it's often associated with some of that emotional manipulation that we saw a few minutes ago. Randy Alcorn, who's an author and former pastor, wrote a book called Money, Possessions, and Eternity. And some of the thoughts uh, in that book are reflected in today's message. One of the things he writes is that the word stewardship has recently fallen on hard times. He writes, to many, it's no longer relevant to the day in which we live. To some, it's a religious cliche used to make fundraising sound spiritual. It conjures up images of large red thermometers on church platforms measuring how far we are from paying off the mortgage. Because of these bland associations, he writes, I was tempted not to use the word in this book, but it's such a good word, both biblically and historically, that it deserves resuscitation rather than burial. And so here's the definition. A steward is someone entrusted with another one's wealth or property and charged with the responsibility of managing it in the owner's best interest. Let me read that again. A steward is someone entrusted with another's wealth or property and charged with the responsibility of managing it in the owner's best interest. A steward is entrusted with sufficient resources and the authority to carry out his designated responsibilities. So again, we start with the foundational truth that God truly owns everything. He owns it all. Then we follow that with the reality that though we have stuff, we have money, we have possessions, we don't own it. We are stewards. God has entrusted to us the things that he owns. And if we hear or learn nothing else this morning, so this is your permission to sleep through the rest of the sermon. Not really. The foundational understanding of our relationship to what God owns will help us immensely when we come to this theme of giving. Now, some sermons often allow preachers to focus on one or two passages of Scripture which seem primary in explaining a biblical theme or a biblical understanding of something. However, a message on money and giving requires a preacher to pick and choose from a vast array of Scripture and focus on just a few elements of this theme. So there's no way that I can cover this theme fully or adequately this morning in the course of a single message. So I'm not even going to try, folks. I'll tell you that right now. Jesus preached 39 parables, and 11 of them relate to money or possessions. Three of the Ten Commandments, maybe four, relate to the same theme. For example, the first commandment is foundational for the all, all the others. So you could include it as one that speaks of money. You shall have no other gods before me. Now clearly, to many people, money is a god. Then we see the commandment against idolatry of any kind. Money also very clearly is an idol to many people. Then we see you shall not steal and you shall not covet. Right? Taking something that belongs to someone else or desiring something that belongs to someone else. The Word of God is consistent and abundant on these themes about money and possessions. And it's something that's sometimes shocking to our 
cultural sensibilities, especially our Western cultural sensibilities. It's shocking because what does it do? It interferes with our lives. It can make us feel guilty. But the Word devotes so much space to this theme that we cannot possibly miss it. For example, there are 2,300 verses in the Bible related to money. 2,300 verses. I know the Bible is a big book, but that's a lot. That's twice as many as are devoted to faith and prayer combined. Surely such a volume of passages must say something about how important these things are for us to grasp. We read, for example, just one of Jesus' 11 parables that he preached that related to money. In uh, Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 15, And he, Jesus, said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Dave, would you grab my cup of water down there? Forgot to bring it up here. <coughs> I don't think you want to listen to me scratchy-throated the rest of the sermon. Okay. Now here's a place, for example, in this parable where we're challenged. You know, there's nothing wrong with saving. In fact, the Word of God even commends saving in many places. That's what this rich man was doing. He was saving, wasn't he? We see many other passages. But the key is in the last three words of this passage, and that's where we draw today's sermon title, Rich Toward God. By the way, I want to show you another sermon title that kind of got voted off the island, Tithe or Perish. And the caption reads, you certainly have a gift for sermon titles. But I like rich toward God better, folks. Rich toward God. Isn't that an interesting phrase? What are we rich toward? Are we rich toward things? Are we rich toward certain activities? Are we rich toward money or wealth? Or are we rich toward God? Being rich toward things is what this parable tells us it is. It's storing up things for yourself. Being rich toward God is storing up things or spending ourselves, our time, our resources on the things of God. Now Jesus tells us at the beginning of this parable that the good life has nothing to do with things or with being wealthy. Because that's true, we have to be on guard. We have to be careful, don't we? We have to take precautions in our lives and in our spirits against greed against hoarding, against selfish use of God's good gifts. So here's another way this gets challenging. Though we see this admonition in Scripture to be rich toward God, which is a hard attitude, we also see saving commended in other places. So how much is too much? When do we cross the line from being prudent savers to selfishly hoarding 
God's resources, which can be used for kingdom purposes. Even the most godly believers, and we have many godly believers here in this body, but we can feel conflicted about money issues. Some days you may feel convicted and you may want to just give it all away and give everything to God. And other days you might want to say, well, gee, I just want to enjoy the good gifts that God has given me. Most days you probably don't want to think about money at all. You just want to use it when you need it. You want it to be there when you need it. But however we feel about money and things, we have to wrestle with what the Word says. And sometimes it doesn't give us complete clarity, let alone specifics. Yet there are principles which are clear even when there are not specifics, such as what kind of house should I have? What kind of car should I drive? What kind of clothes should I buy? We are left with a lot of personal discretion, aren't we? We're left to make choices before God, and so that's why it's a hard attitude again. It really comes down to our hard attitude about what we do with our money. God doesn't look on the outward appearance like we tend to do. We tend to look at our hearts uh, only when we're encouraged to. He looks at our hearts always, so that's where we need to look. We look at someone who drives such and such a car or lives in such and such a kind of house and we can find ourselves making judgments about the spirituality of their giving. They couldn't be very spiritual. Look at the house they live in. Look at that late model expensive car that they drive. They couldn't possibly be giving much to the work of the Lord. So we make assumptions and we make judgments. But Jesus commended the widow for giving everything she had in Mark 12, didn't she? Mark 12, verses 43 and 44, calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. Now that's a challenging verse, isn't it? Is that meant to be prescriptive for us? Does that mean that we all need to, uh, maybe we need to have a second offering here this morning? And everybody needs to get out their checkbooks and empty their bank accounts. Maybe we need to do that. Are we all supposed to give everything we have? Didn't Jesus also tell the rich man in Matthew 19 to go and sell everything he had and then he'd have treasure in heaven? But again, what God is looking at is our hearts. Jesus did not and does not call all of his disciples to liquidate their possessions, give away all their money, and leave home. But Jesus knew that money was the rich young man's God. He also knew that none of us can enthrone the true God unless in the process we dethrone our other gods. If Christ is not Lord over our money and possessions, then he is not our Lord. That's a strong statement, isn't it? If Jesus isn't Lord over the things we have, then he is not Lord. Just as Jesus gauged Zacchaeus's true spiritual condition by his willingness to part with his money, so he gauged the rich young ruler's true spiritual condition by his unwillingness to part with his money. So again, the question we must ask ourselves is what's our heart's attitude? This is where we have to be brutally honest with ourselves. We can be very self-deceptive, but we need to be brutally honest with ourselves and we need to have a little bit of self-awareness about how important things are to us. Do we know that it all belongs to God? Do our bank accounts 
and our spending reflect this? Do we recognize we don't own anything? We are simply His stewards. Do we remember that as stewards, we're never spending our money? We're spending God's resources. And that we're expected to spend it wisely, intentionally, for kingdom purposes, even sacrificially. And at the same time, we are graciously allowed to enjoy the blessing of His provision for our own personal needs. That's the hard attitude that God wants us to have. We're spending His resources. We need to be careful. We need to ask questions about how we spend, when we spend, why we spend. When we don't think of money and possessions in a biblical sense, we are subject in ourselves to what some have called affluenza. We tend to worry about Ebola. But I'll tell you what, this is way more scary than Ebola. It's way more contagious than Ebola is. And it's amazing how susceptible all of us are to this illness. Now, any one of us can get this illness. And all of us have to take ongoing precautions against getting it. We can't take the precautions we did yesterday. We have to take the precautions today to keep from getting this illness. If we let our guard down and we don't take regular illness prevention steps, it's likely we'll be infected with affluenza. But though we've heard many warnings about how this illness can affect us, we do tend to take it for granted. We tend to think, well, no, not me. I won't get this illness. I won't be affected. Well, we've already read a passage of Scripture which gives a warning about this illness. In Luke 12, 15, Then Jesus said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of of his possessions. What did Jesus say? Be on your guard. Be on your guard. Here's our warning against this illness. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And our culture, especially the Western culture that all of us live in, is really sick with this illness. Since we live in this culture, it's very hard to avoid exposure to this illness. All you have to do is drive home today and look at the billboards. All you have to do is turn on your television. Even if you're not a TV watcher, all you have to do is open your newspaper. All you have to do is turn on your radio. We can't avoid exposure. Now, affluenza has become a widely used word even outside the church where people recognize how getting caught up in materialism can be a real sickness. It can ruin lives. It can cripple families. It can debilitate and cripple us and have a ripple effect that absolutely destroys us spiritually. And it can destroy us in other ways, too. We can see that even among unbelievers. Scripture tells us this, too. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, it says, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into, into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. It's sad to think. Paul's, or this this, this uh, letter to Timothy is to Christians, folks. It's sad to think that influenza can infect even churches and even Christians. But it's clear that it can and it does. But there is a cure for this disease. No cure for Ebola yet, but there is a cure for affluenza. By God's grace, we can be rich God. 
by His grace, we can recognize that we don't own anything. By His grace, we can recognize that we are simply God's stewards. We are His money managers. And we can be rich toward God by planting spiritual seeds rather than fleshly seeds in our lives. That's another way that Scripture describes the heart attitude that God is looking for from His followers. We don't have to guess, folks. We don't have to guess about the kind of heart attitude. We see multitudes of passages of Scripture that tell us. One passage that illustrates this is one that we studied in our house church this week. It's uh, Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. Let me read it to you. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, I told our group this week when we were beginning this discussion that I struggled with leading the discussion of the passage, too, for the very same reasons that I mentioned to you that I struggled to preach this sermon. It feels self-serving, and it could be perceived as manipulative. Yet, here it is, folks. Here it is. Let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And as the one who has the privilege of preaching most often here at TCF, I apologize for not preaching more often on these many passages addressing these money issues just because it makes me uncomfortable and just because it might make you a little uncomfortable too. And you must know, it's not in my heart this morning to make you feel guilty. But the word says what it says, folks. The Word says what it says, and I never want to dumb down the Word of God. And I do you a disservice by not preaching the whole counsel of God. And if the Holy Spirit brings conviction to any of you through the preaching of the Word, then glory to God that His Word is in fact living and active and is penetrating your spirit, hopefully here this morning. What I want for all of us is that we learn to be givers and to grow in that grace. And it is a grace. I don't want that we learn to be givers so I'll have a bigger budget to administer here at TCF. I don't want it so the church will be able to pay me a larger salary. I want you, I want all of us, to be more consistent, to be more obedient stewards of God's money for your benefit, not for mine. My hope is that with me and all the elders, you know all of us well enough by now to know that an admonition for you to be godly stewards of God's money is not a call to enrich ourselves or even the church materially, but it's a call to enrich you spiritually because that's what Scripture says. After all, what does Paul write here to the Galatians? He compares two kinds of sowing or giving. First, there's the kind that's done for selfish gain. It's done to our flesh. It's done to make us fat and happy. And then he tells us that this kind of sowing brings what? Corruption, destruction. And then he tells us the amazing and wonderful results of sowing to the Spirit. Perhaps another phrase that means something similar to the phrase that is our sermon title this morning, being rich toward God. Sowing to the Spirit, Paul writes, reaps eternal life. 
If a person sows to please his sinful nature, that is, if he spends his money to indulge the flesh, he will reap a harvest that will fade into oblivion. On the other hand, if he uses his funds to support the Lord's work or sows to please the Spirit and promotes his own spiritual growth, he will reap a harvest that will last forever. Though a broader application of the principle is legitimate, it seems clear that Paul was dealing primarily with the question of financial support of Christian workers in the Galatian church. Now, I discovered some things in my research this week as I was preparing for this sermon. And these things gave me an even greater motivation, if it was possible, because the Lord's been prompting me on this for a long time. But it even gave me a greater motivation to finally preach this message that I've been putting off preaching for several weeks. I went looking for some statistics on giving, and I found some troubling facts. Depending on the study you cite, and there's a lot of studies out there, less than 3% of Christians tithe. And fairly consistently across the research I found, about 40% of Christians do not give anything to their church. Zero, nada. Four out of ten believers give nothing to their church. For me, there was something I found that was even more concerning in my pastor's heart. It was pastorally concerning. I learned this in my research. 40% of TCFers year-to-date, 2014, have given nothing to TCF. 40% of us. Don't look around. Before you start sweating and worrying that you've been exposed here this morning, let me be quick to add this. The TCF elders have an ethic that we do not know and we do not want to know who gives what to the church. We do not want to be subject to any charge of favoritism one way or another because we know that so-and-so gives a lot and -and so-and-so gives a little. But our accounting software actually has a report that I never knew about until I got into it this week that we can access. It's called the Contribution Range Report. And it simply shows anonymously, with no donor names attached, the raw numbers of how many people gave money in a given range. Zero to zero, zero to 500, and on up from there, 5,000 and up is the biggest category. We have 88 contributors on the books, and 36 of these, or about 40%, have given nothing year to date. From January 1st to October, whatever it was, the day that I ran the report last week. I also learned that 60% have contributed nothing to our missions fund. This is pastorally concerning to me, folks. And it's not pastorally concerning because, again, I want to enrich our general fund and I want our missions to be fully supported, okay? It's because of all the scripture we've just read. It's what the Word has to say. The dozens more of scripture that we didn't read which commend and even command us to be givers. There's a significant part of our Christian life missing if we aren't giving, at the very least, to our local church. And I told Jim Grinnell, as we were talking about this this week, that I'm going to throw myself under the bus. And here's how I'm going to do that. Think about this. How can I expect this congregation to have a biblical understanding of giving and to understand that it all belongs to God, to understand that we're just stewards charged with managing God's money if I never or seldom teach about these things. So just a brief word on the tithe. Here at TCF, and these are things, again, that I've learned in my many years here at TCF, I learned that the tithe is not a law like it is in the Old Testament. We're under law, or excuse me, we're not under law, we're under grace. Yet we cannot use that fact as 
a reason not to give. We can't use that as an excuse. In fact, if you think about it, almost everything that he said about moral or spiritual issues, Jesus set higher standards for us than the Old Testament set for us. So while much of the Old Testament system is moot now that we are in Christ, many principles of the Old Testament remain. And while the tithe, which simply means one out of ten, or ten percent, is no longer a law, it's still a principle. And even Jesus affirmed this in Matthew 23, verse 23. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And sometimes here in the midst of Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees as hypocrites, we miss this. Jesus said, these you ought to have done. These meaning tithe. He said, you ought to have done this, but here's what you missed. So in the New Testament understanding, the tithe is no longer a law, but a principle for giving. And we must remember, and I learned this here at TCF, it's a floor. It's not a ceiling. In other words, it's not the top. In other words, we've done the tithe and we're done. It's like training wheels for Christian giving. That's what the tithe is, folks. This is another thing I learned here at TCF. The tithe is to your church. The church is to be our priority in giving to the Lord. We see that affirmed in the passage we just read from Galatians, which affirmed giving to your local church. In Galatians 6.10, it said, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. So that means we can do good to all people, folks. We can give to things outside the church. But it says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. What's a household of faith? Folks, it's where you're sitting here this morning. It's your local church. Uh, great commentary on Galatians written by a theologian named Todd Wilson. And I want to quote him now. He says, as we give, we must begin with our local church. Then as we're able, we can contribute to other Christian ministries or worthy causes. But we should not find ourselves in a place where we have nothing to give to the church because we've extended our resources everywhere else. That would be to fall short of Scripture's counsel to do good to all, especially to the household of faith. Is there a good rule of thumb, though, to help us think concretely about what prioritizing our giving to the local church might look like? I think there is, and I'm not alone. Christians through the ages and across the denominations have identified this as a benchmark for generous giving. Ten percent, or what's sometimes referred to as a tithe. Let me be very clear and direct in saying this. If we want to give generously and prioritize the local church, we should start by giving 10% of our income to support the church's ministries. So again, I learned these things through the years at TCF, long before I was ever in the pulpit preaching myself. The tithe is just a starting point. We give the tithe to the local church. Offerings and missions giving are over and above the tithe. And I remember both Chuck Farah and Bill Sanders, probably some of the other elders, encouraging us years ago, we are to make every effort to increase the overall percentage of our giving. I remember specifically being challenged here from this pulpit by one of those men to be 12% or 15% or 17% or even 20% givers. And that means all of us. That means all of us. And some of you are sitting here thinking this morning, how can I possibly, how can I possibly even give a tithe? You'll find a tithe even an incredibly challenging goal. 
But here's the thing. Jesus commended the widow for having virtually nothing but giving everything she had. So how can I in good conscience, I might, you know, in my heart, I might want to let you off the hook. Well, I know you don't make very much. I know you struggle with your finances. And so God understands. He'll let you off the hook. But how can I do that in good conscience and stand here and say to those of you who struggle financially, hey, you're off the hook. Take a pass on this message about giving. Just file this one away for future reference when you make more money. Giving is an act of God's grace. Writing to the church at Corinth about giving, Paul wrote this, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. This act of grace, he was talking about giving, folks. He was talking about giving as an act of grace. And then in verse 10, he says, And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you. He's talking about giving again. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this, but also the desire to do it. So Paul said to the church at Corinth, This benefits you. Bill Sullivan said to the church at TCF, This benefits you. This is for your good. This giving this excelling in the act of grace benefits those who give. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, a chapter later, Paul writes, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So what do we think? In closing, I want to read one more thing that the Apostle Paul wrote. And I want to read this passage because it really reflects my pastoral heart for my brothers and sisters in Christ here at TCF. As we close this message, on being rich toward God. It's from Philippians chapter 4, verse 17. Not that I seek the gift. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Amen? Heavenly Father, we're grateful for all the wonderful things that you bless us with as followers of Christ. We're also very grateful for your word, Father, which gives us very clear principles about these things very clearly reveals that we own nothing that it all belongs to you and that in your graciousness in your providence father you allow us to have good things and to enjoy good things but father we also see that because it doesn't belong to us we are to be good stewards we are to be good stewards of what you have blessed us with because it doesn't belong to us father help us even now, even this morning, to begin to ask more seriously, more consistently the question, is this how I should spend my money? What would God have me give to my local church? What would God have me give to other ministries and things that touch God's heart and touch my heart? Heavenly Father, we want to be open to the prompting of your Holy Spirit in this arena. And Father, we thank you that this is not a law we have to obey but it's a grace we get to participate in, being stewards, being managers of 
the resources that you have provided. Lord, help us to be godly stewards. Help us to be stewards who always ask first, God, what would you want me to do with this money that I have, with this possession, even with this time and other resources that I have, Lord God? We want to be godly stewards. Lord, build that into all of our hearts. And Father, we thank you that we do benefit from being givers, that we can reap a harvest, Father, from being givers. And we pray, Lord God, that we would be consistent to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Bill, for being obedient to preach to us the full counsel of God and to preach from that core of uh, verses uh, that speaks about money. And what an amazing thought that Scripture speaks about money more than any other single topic. So thank you for being obedient, and thank you, uh, TCF, for hearing uh, the word of the Lord this morning.